Once again, it's On Mike with Jordan Rich. So nice to welcome you to the podcast that celebrates conversation with people who have a lot to say. I'm really excited about the guest we're about to unveil. I've been a fan and a follower of his for many, many years, as millions of you have. He's the one and only Leonard Maltin, who's written tons of books about movies and television and pop culture, decades on TV, interviewing stars, critiquing films and more. And his latest project is a memoir. It's called Starstruck, My Unlikely Road to Hollywood. Let's just say I devoured it in one sitting. It was just fabulous. And we're about to hear some stories from a guy who's met them all, from Katherine Hepburn and Jimmy Stewart to Clint Eastwood and Will Smith and so many more. Leonard is still quite busy co-hosting a podcast with his daughter and teaching popular classes at the USC School of Cinematic Arts. So it's a pleasure and honor to welcome the author of Starstruck, Mr. Leonard Malton, joining us all on mic. The book is terrific, but you know what? I have copies of all of your uh, movie books, Leonard Malton movie books, more copies than hotels have Bibles, I think. <laughs> and I, I want to thank you for that. This latest, though, is, is a personal project. This is your, your memoir, your entertainment memoir. What prompted you to write it at this time? Well, uh, to be honest, the pandemic had a lot to do with it. Uh, when we uh, got, I mean, I, I didn't have to change my work habits at all because I work at home mm -hmm. all the time mm. uh, at my desk at my computer. Writing is what I primarily do. But uh, what to write? Uh, I got one assignment, fortunately, uh, a paying gig, as we say, around the beginning of the pandemic in March of last year. And then uh, uh, I've been toying with doing a memoir, and I figured, well, if not now, then when? In your case, you have so many great stories, and I want to get to just a few of them, and I want people to read Starstruck, My Unlikely Road to Hollywood. But why don't we start with that unlikely road? You're, you're a kid, much like me and people of my ilk, who at a very young age reached out to celebrities, reached out to people you, had, you really admired, and, and just were boldly going where no kid went before. And yet it didn't seem unusual to me that, you know, uh, um, the... The people around me thought uh, hmm. it was unusual. My teachers, uh, you know, people who wrote columns for uh, newspapers, you know, wrote about me as a wunderkind, you know, uh, you know, teenager publishes his own magazine for movie buffs and all that. But it, it all just came came about, you know, through a series of circumstances and. Uh, uh, I I saw this as my path, which and, is why I was so upset that I kept placing into advanced mathematics classes <laughs> in junior high school and high school and failing them. Yeah, and I said, this, "I'm never going to use trigonometry. I'm going to be a writer." And uh, I mean, I you know, math, yes, algebra, somewhat, even geometry, you could make a case for, but trigonometry. Uh, I'm with you. It doesn't even enter into my sphere of, of understanding. I knew, you know, I, knew, I knew where I was headed. I didn't know yeah. how it would go, and I never thought... I, I was not concerned at age 15 about how I would make a living, but I, I knew this is what I was going to be doing. Well, you were born at a time when television was really rocking with the old stuff, with the R Gang comedies and the Stooges and all the, the universal horror movies, and I, I'm a little, just a few years younger than you, but... What was it about that era that sparked your interest? And, and I know you have some specific names you'll mention. What was magical about that time in your estimation? Well, 
I, I tell my, I teach at USC here in mm-hmm. Los Angeles, and I teach a very large group of 20-somethings. And I, I try to give them some sense of context because uh, I'm a baby boomer, and they are far, they're, you know, Gen X or Gen Y or whatever, <laughs> millennials, whatever you want to call them. Uh, but I say that I'm a child of the first TV generation. And at that time, TV was a living museum of movies. So uh, Laurel and Hardy, I watched every single day. Same with The Little Rascals. Mm. Same with The Stooges later on. Same with, uh, uh, and, and Walt Disney was on TV uh, every week, you know, showing us how he made his films and taking us behind the scenes and explaining how animation was created. Uh, all of this was, uh, this was magical to me. This was the, the stuff of awe and wonder. And I, I went to my local library, uh, which was walking distance of my house in New Jersey, and uh, there weren't that many books to read. Uh, mm. Some of them came out you know, as I was following my path. And uh, the ones that I didn't find, I wound up writing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's so true. And you talk about it in the book that we're talking about today. You've sort of filled in the, a lot of gaps, whether it be old-time radio or the R-Gang comedies or uh, character actors. And, and we're not even talking about the overall movie guides, but a lot of really good stuff that uh, became cultish in a way. Uh, more people sort of recognize it today than they did back then. Yes, I was, you know, not too many of my uh, my peers were into it to the degree that I was. Uh, but I did start a, a motion picture club in my high school. And uh, there's, uh, you know, there was a high nerd factor mm. uh, <laughs> uh, there. But, but we, we were nerdy and proud of it. When I read through the book and saw names like Billy Gilbert, I got all excited. I thought I was the only one. When I saw Billy Gilbert's name, an old character comedic actor from the silent era, I thought to myself, I'm not alone. I have a, I have a leader, you. Well, yes, and that, uh, <laughs> he was the first person I met on my first trip to Hollywood. Mm. Uh, and uh, that w- wouldn't mean a lot to some people, but it meant the world to me and, and to people like you. Yeah. And he was just a, a lovely man. He had had a stroke by then, uh, uh, so he, he was somewhat impaired, but he and his wife, uh, Ella, or Lolly, had been married so many years, she knew all of his stories, so she mm. could fill in the gaps. And uh, this is a man who worked with Laurel and Hardy, with Charlie Chaplin, with everybody. One of the things that strikes me, among others, is your appreciation and your dedication to knowing about character actors, people today who fit that bill, but the ones from the from the old glory days, and there are dozens and dozens of them, and you get a chance to meet quite a few, besides Billy Gilbert, of course, uh, you, you write about some. Who are some of your favorite encounters character actor-wise? Oh, well, uh, Una Merkel. Yeah. Of, uh, Grady Sutton. Uh, Ed, Edgar Buchanan. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, the uh, the list does go on and on. Uh, later, I met Mark Lawrence. Oh, who uh, who was lived to be about a hundred, right? He was a that's, yes, and, and and still working, still working as a tough guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, his his name was not Mark Lawrence, M A R C 
mind you. Mm-hmm. Mark Lawrence was really like Max Jacobson yeah. or something <laughs> like that. There's another name I know we're jumping around here, James Karen, whom uh, many oh, well, people would loved him. Tell, tell me about him and your relationship with him. Well, he, he was very special. He, um, uh, he was the nephew of the great uh, stage actor Morris Karnofsky. Mm-hmm. Uh, so his name was Karnofsky, which he Americanized and shortened to Karen, K-A-R-E-N. Uh, but uh, my wife and I had a theory that if, if Jimmy didn't know you, you didn't exist. <laughs> he, he was just a uh, uh, the most social person I ever met. He acquired, he collected friends. He acquired, you know, new friends every time he, he worked. And uh, we knew him as Mr. Pathmark. He was the on-camera spokesman for Pathmark Supermarkets. Right. I don't know, 15 years or more. Mm-hmm. And um, then, you know, he had a stage background. He, uh, you know, he, he worked with Kazan. Hmm. He worked with with everybody who was anybody. And, and in later years, he, he and his wife resettled here in Los Angeles. He's the guy who sells the family that house in Poltergeist. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, he's James Bond's boss in the China Syndrome. Yeah. Uh, he's the first one who shows Will Smith any generosity in the pursuit of happiness. Uh, he, he's, he was just a remarkable guy. And he became very close to Buster Keaton. And, uh, uh, and then later to his widow, uh, Eleanor Keaton. And so he's a living link. He was a living link. To, you know, another era of show business as well. Leonard, you tell a great Buster Keaton story about a movie he was filming, and maybe you can share a little bit. And I'm a huge Buster Keaton fan. I think he's probably the most underrated, although he's accepted and loved by people like you and me, but uh, so brilliant in so many films, physical comedy. Uh, what was that situation where he was filming something? Well, uh, I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, which is a very close-in suburb of Manhattan. I could leave my doorstep and be in Manhattan in a half hour. And uh, one morning, a friend, my best friend and I, were going to go to New York for the day uh, and make our rounds. We used to go to used bookshops and see an old movie at the Museum of mm. Modern Art or one of the other great revival theaters in the city. And my parents got, got the New York Times delivered to our doorstep every morning. And I picked up the paper before we left, and I saw there was a story about Buster Keaton making a movie, uh, a short film written by the great playwright Samuel Beckett. Mm. And they were filming, now here's here's the exact quote, uh, alongside a dilapidated warehouse in the shadow of the Brooklyn Bridge. (laughs) And I said to my friend, this is our shot, we got to go and try to meet him. So I I took along an 8x10 still I had just found at a used bookshop. Uh, of, of Keaton. We were slammed it into a manila envelope, tucked it under my arm, and we took the subway down to Canal Street. When we got to the surface, it was mostly uh, vacant lots, uh, but we, we looked a few blocks away and there were some lights and reflectors. Okay, that, that was where they were making a movie. We walked over there and it was a very small production. They had no security anywhere. Hmm. And we wandered a little bit and then found sitting in the back seat of a car, reading the day's newspaper, with his pork pie hat <laughs> on the seat next to him, 
<laughs> was Buster Keaton. There he was. Mm. So I sort of poked my face in the, the rear window. I said, Mr. Keaton, he said, yeah. And I used the still, the movie still is my icebreaker. I said, I just found this photo of you, Mr. Keaton, and, and I don't know what it's from. Could you identify it? And he said, without missing a beat, he said, oh, that's Parlor Bedroom and Bab. That's not the gal who's in the movie. Maybe this is a rehearsal shot. Yeah, wow. I said, oh, and I said, would you sign it for me? Yeah, sure. So he signed it. And we exchanged just a few more words. I introduced my friend. But, you know, I didn't, we didn't know how to begin to carry on a conversation with him. Uh, and he was not a uh, outgoing you know, person, until you got to know him, apparently. Uh, and, uh, but we had our moment with Buster Keaton. That and is. that was it. I was 13 years old. <laughs> it's funny, because I was going to say. Years later, I yep. found out mm-hmm. that Jimmy Karen was not only in that film, but was probably standing like 10 feet away from me at that moment. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> six feet, six degrees. Of separation, yeah. no question. No, I was thinking as you were saying that and telling that story about being 13, that there are two kinds of people. There's the 13-year-old who's getting gaga over Buster Keaton, and then there's the 13-year-old who wants to meet Paul McCartney or Mickey Mantle. I mean, or maybe there's a little bit of both in all of us, but <laughs> uh, I love that. I love that story. One of the things that stands out in the book throughout the stories is your real admiration and love for some of these people and what they did. Now, you seem to have a real affection for the people you've met. Well, absolutely. I mean, how, how else would I be? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it just comes naturally. I, you know, I, I, I'm an unabashed fan. I'm not embarrassed by that word. And uh, uh, I never set out to be a critic. Being a critic is something that happened to me because it was a uh, a, a job, <laughs> a good job, but you know, saying that you're a historian, uh, you know, it means like saying you're manufacturing buggy whips. Yeah, you know, it's not, not a growth <laughs> sector of the economy. Right. But I've been blessed. I've been lucky because while being a film critic got me employment, uh, uh, I used that as a wedge to try to talk and write about film history. Yeah, and in the book, Starstruck by Leonard Maltin, and I want to keep pushing it because it's such a terrific read, you focus on so many great interviews and so many things, and I'll talk about a few of them specifically, but what I love about the stories is the little nuggets that we get. For instance, I'm just going to throw a couple at you. It's Frank Sinatra handwriting. (laughs) Uh, Who would ever know what kind of handwriting, but you do. How do you know that? That is handwriting. Well, I worked for a while for the uh, great uh, stand-up comic Alan King, who was also a a, a busy producer of plays and television shows and such. And uh, too complicated a story to explain how I came to be working for Alan and his then-producing partner. But uh, I was tasked with uh, creating something called the American Academy of Humor, you know, the American Academy of Humor. Sure, I go there all the time. <laughs> no one's ever heard of it because it only existed for about a year and a half. But I had a great time uh, doing that while it, while it was alive and kicking. And one of the things I did was I said, well, we need to build a real membership roster. So Alan had 
done a TV special called the Comedy Awards and sent ballots to everybody he could think of in show business. And there was about 200 people, a legitimate number to vote on the funniest film of the year and the funniest TV show, stuff like that. Well, I wanted to beef up that list, so I sent out hundreds more invitations uh, to comedy writers, to cartoonists, comic strip people, uh, all sorts. And Frank Sinatra responded on our, on our invitation card uh, with a little note to Alan, and he had the most beautiful cursive handwriting. Uh, <laughs> it stayed with me because not the first thing you you would you would think of. No, no. Those those. And you know who else had beautiful handwriting? I, I carried on a correspondence with Mo Howard. Oh gosh. Three Stooges, and he hand wrote his little notes to me. Again, his penmanship was. <laughs> There's another uh, really fun little piece of trivia or nugget of information that made me laugh and and smile. You learn how John Wayne, the Duke walk the way he did, because every comedian impressionist does the walk. And you heard from a co-star of his, a great character actor, how he... Well, Harry Carey Jr., who was a wonderful (laughs) character actor, and whose father, Harry Carey Sr., had been a a star, a major star in the silent era, who then transitioned and was a great character actor, you know, in his his later years. Uh, He's the president of the Senate, and Mr. Smith goes to Washington... He's in tons and tons of movies. But Junior, whose nickname was Doby, uh, told me that his his father-in-law, a character actor named Paul Fix, who oh, yes. plays Sheriff on the Rifleman. Micah, yeah. Micah. And he said Paul Fix taught John Wayne how to walk. And by, <laughs> it said, point your toes with each step. Point your toes inward and it'll give you a kind of an interesting gait. Uh, and he followed that uh, advice and uh, became uh, John Wayne. <laughs> and all I can think of is John Biner doing John Wayne and doing that walk. <laughs> That's so cool. That's great. Uh, when you're doing an interview with a major megastar, and I'll give you the, the one I want you to comment on, you write about the giddy feeling and and the nerves and the butterflies. And I feel the same way. And I've interviewed a lot of people in Boston who've come through. Catherine Hepburn, perfect example. Our vision of her, our visage of her is one thing. And you must have had a thought going in, but uh, she was a fascinating person to interview more than once. Can you share a little bit of that experience? Well, the the first time I got to interview, I interviewed her, I think, four or five times. Mm -hmm. Twice at her home, her brownstone, on East 49th Street, where her neighbor was Stephen Sondheim, by the way. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, she uh, she was an easy interview. I mean, she's my favorite interview ever, mm. because she's just so interesting. Uh, she was opinionated, colorful, and blunt. I mean, an interviewer's dream. Uh, and uh, she didn't suffer fools lightly, but also uh, didn't uh, uh, didn't have the ability to be dull. <laughs> it was not in her to be dull. Yeah, a great story. And, and even in in the, one of the last interviews when she was pretty elderly, uh, she still managed to get it done. Uh, and and it must yeah. must be sad to see somebody at that point 
slow down, but what a thrill. What a thrill to be with her. Oh, man. I mean, as I say, how, how lucky can you get, you know? Uh, and that all came about because I got hired almost by accident by Entertainment yeah, Tonight. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. The, yeah. Toward the end of its first season. And um, by its newest producer, they'd been through three already by the time I got there. And the new producer was a legendary newspaper editor named Jim Bellows. And uh, I don't think his predecessors would have given me the time of day. I had no TV experience except as an author going out there to you know promote my book. I'd mm-hmm. done a lot of TV in that, in that capacity. But I never talked to the camera before. I never wrote scripts to be read, you know, on camera to the audience. As, as you do, you have to sort of think of talking to just one person. Uh, I got on-the-job training. Do you think, Leonard, that your your years of experience and know-how in, in writing and journalism, the old-fashioned way, that it helped you master TV as well as you did? I, I don't know what to attribute it to, uh, Jordan. I am... Uh, I just, I, it was a swim or sink situation. <laughs> and, uh, uh, with Miss Hepburn, uh, you know, I try to remain uh, uh, calm and uh, cool and collected, even though I wasn't. Uh, but then again, she was a very, uh, we, we fell into an easy kind of uh, conversation and she, she uh, paid me a nice compliment. She said that I, I made her feel comfortable doing that. Oh, well, you know, if, if so, then wonderful. Great. Uh, let's, let's do more. Well, and yes, every time, every time uh, uh, our camera guys had to change the, the, the tapes in their recorders, I think we were on 20-minute uh, tape loads at the time. The, the NBC publicist who had set this up, uh, more steam would come out of her ears mm. because she'd made a deal with my boss that we would be talking about this trivial little movie she made for NBC, but they couldn't show me a frame of it. <laughs> Yet they wanted me to talk about mostly that. Oh yes. Publicists, the bane of our you existence. Know, and, yes. But I, but I heard, I, I then edited my own pieces more on the job training and I could hear the sound bites flying by. <laughs> so I knew we had enough that with some film clips, we would be able to legitimately keep our end of the bargain and do a story predicated on this new TV movie she was in. And I wasn't going to waste the opportunity uh, to, to ask her about other things. The back of the book has a picture of you with my all-time favorite movie actor, Jimmy Stewart. And my takeaway in reading your book and knowing you from TV is that you had a connection with particularly these older stars because you, you knew where they came from. You knew what they did. You knew how much they contributed and what they stood for. Surely had to be the case with people like Jimmy Stewart, I'm guessing. Well, you know, they, they always seemed mildly surprised at first that I knew their movies <laughs> as well as they did. Uh, and I, I, I came to believe that it was not that I was so great or so uh, knowledgeable as the fact that so many people that they had to be uh, polite to mm. who interviewed them didn't know anything. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. just by contrast, I stood out. And and talk about the Jimmy Stewart experience, one of the Jimmy Stewart experiences where he's well, my, reading my copy. Bosses, 
my bosses came to me and said, uh, we want to do a tribute to Frank Capra on his 91st birthday. And we've uh, arranged with Jimmy Stewart to host it. We want you to write it. So I had just interviewed, I'd interviewed him already a couple of times. And so I, 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 you know, I had a sense of how he spoke uh, and uh, the cadence of his voice. And I knew uh, what he felt about Frank Capra. And so uh, I wrote a script for him and that, that he found, uh, uh, you know, suitable and uh, felt, felt right, uh, you know, speaking aloud. Mm. But we didn't know if he'd ever worked with a teleprompter before. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we asked ahead of time, and his longtime publicist said, oh, he's fine, that's fine for him. Well, there was a miscommunication. He'd worked with cue cards before never was a moving teleprompter. And at first, he, he, he was unsure of himself doing that. And I said, Mr. Stewart, he's going to follow your pace. You don't have to follow his pace. He's going to go whatever speed you find you know, easy to deal with. And within like two minutes, he had it down. He figured it out mm. and, and, and could do it. Well, so we did a rehearsal take of the first introductory piece he was going to say and then when we did then, then my my director said all right let's let, let's do this one for real and i noticed that he froze up ever so slightly if you if i weren't standing so close i wouldn't have even seen it but that first take that we shot uh, on video was not it was great but it was not as good as the one he had just done as rehearsal now, how do you tell Jimmy Stewart, do it again? Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, well, finally, so my, my director uh, said, would you like to see that? And he said, well, yeah, can we do that? Oh, sure. He spun the monitor around on the stage and, and, and played the, 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 what he had just shot. And then we didn't have to say a word. He said, let's do it again. He knew that it was, it was not as great as, as he, he was capable of doing. And from that point forward, we didn't have to say a word to him. He knew when he yeah. nailed it and when he didn't, and mostly he did because he was right. Jimmy Stewart. Well, I, I'm, I'm obviously talking to a, a gentleman here who knows more about It's a Wonderful Life, Frank Kavner, Jimmy Stewart, than I would ever know. However, I'm a huge fan of the movie. Can you just share that little additional story about the stair post and what what Jimmy did at the uh, at the uh, well, shooting? We had a uh, uh, an art director build a sort of a replica of the uh, Bailey uh, household, uh, the interior of the Bailey household from It's a Wonderful Life, and we even had a new post at the bottom of the staircase, and uh, we 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 were going to use it for the last. Uh, uh, segment that he, he had introduced and we asked him to go up this like six step staircase and carry the new post accidentally with him in his hand mm. the way he did in the movie and he said well we did it in the movie I was coming down the stairs we said, oh right right Mr. Shuey yes absolutely <laughs> so we had, so we reset it and he did he did a quick rehearsal and it was just perfect oh that, that that's one of those moments in life when you're when you're on the set and you know 
and you feel that moment because you're such a fan of the film and him. Wow, I, I read that and I, I got goosebumps uh, reading it, as I did reading about uh, a lot of things, including your chronicling um, a lot of things. Keep You're almost uh, the official record keeper of the times. And I want to talk a little bit with you about Disney because you're a huge Disney fan, but I didn't realize you did so much within the Disney empire for Disney. Um, share with us a little bit of what you ended up doing. Well, I I had an idea for for a special series of DVDs, and uh, this is uh, beginning of the, <laughs> the beginning of the millennium, mm. uh, of the year two thousand. I'd I'd gone to the Disney Studio screenings, and I brought my daughter to some things, and I was introduced to a man named Dick Cook, who was then the president of the company. This is a man who put in thirty seven years. Uh, at, at the company, and his first job was operating the Jungle Cruise at Disneyland. Hmm. And uh, so he, he, he was Disney through and through. And I said, I have an idea. Can, can I pitch it to you? He said, sure, let's have breakfast. You like to have breakfast meetings. So he picked a restaurant near both of us, which was very close to the studio in Burbank. And I pitched the idea of doing a series of DVDs uh, where instead of just throwing a bunch of Donald Duck cartoons on a disc and saying the best of Donald Duck, we did it in a more orderly way so that Disney buffs and collectors uh, would you know, get more out of it. And I, I, DVD was just then supplanting VHS as the medium of choice. And uh, DVD would give us the ability to do bonus features and interviews and behind-the-scenes stories. And... I got done with my little song and dance, and he said, let's do it. That may have been the shortest pitch meeting in Hollywood. <laughs> of course, it took time to get contracts drawn up and dealing with the you know, business affairs people. But uh, Dick was always in my corner, and we, we st- I spent nine years producing 37 of these uh, DVD sets called Walt Disney Treasures. And through producing those, I got to meet. Uh, I got to meet everybody. You know, the voice of Donald and Goofy and Mickey yeah. and Minnie. Yeah. And, uh, and Roy, you met Roy, of course, right? And 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 Roy O. Dis- Roy E. Disney, Roy Edward mm-hmm. Disney, mm-hmm. who was the son of Walt's, you know, uh, older brother, uh, Roy O. Disney, who was the enabler. He was the guy who found the money. And found the backing uh, to let his kid brother do what he dreamt of doing. Did you ever run into a guy named Don Ducky Williams by any chance? No. Okay, uh, I, I did a. I may have, but it, yeah, not, uh, not it, he's just one of the animators. I, the only reason I, I <laughs> when I was doing radio in the '90s, we we used to do some remotes down at uh, Walt Disney World, and I met him, and he did a a personalized Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse for my kids which uh, they're a little older now, but uh, there is something so magical, and that's so trite to say it, but about the Disney experience. Um, and and you, I came away with a different sense of Walt Disney, just reading a little bit about the Disney in your chapter. Uh, he gets a bit of a rap uh, by a lot of people for various things, but I really came away with a better feeling about the Disney magic and the Disney mission. Well, I'm a believer. I'm a true believer. I'm not a, uh, uh, I don't have blinders on. 
I know things that he's been accused of, and most of them I have proven to be false. Mm-hmm. And uh, I spoke to a lot of people who were close to him, not, not I mean, including his daughter and son-in-law, eldest daughter, uh, Diane, who passed away several years ago. And, and a lot of animators, storymen, and people who worked very, very closely with him and under him. And uh, he's, you know, he, he's not a, he wasn't a saint. He wasn't, you know, infallible. As a human being, he had quirks and prejudices and peccadillos like anybody. But he was a visionary. Yeah. And, uh, and as a boss, he was, had an incredible gift for channeling people, talented people, and, and goading them into doing things they didn't know they could do. Most of the people who built Disneyland and then Walt Disney World started off as animators. They didn't know anything about building attractions or rides, but they learned, and he knew they would be able to learn and to use the imagination that they had to fuel these incredible dreams of Walt. Right, right, right. I keep coming back to how lucky you are and I am and people of our ilk who love this stuff because you write about folks that everybody has some knowledge of, at least because they've been around for so long. But you write about Jerry Lewis. And when I was a kid, <clears throat> there was nobody more exciting and crazy and funny than Jerry Lewis. And it's, I'm not embarrassed to say that. And everybody has a story in show business about Jerry was either nice to them or <laughs> wasn't nice to them. But a larger-than-life figure. And uh, I don't know if we'll ever see the likes of that kind of individual again. But um, I'm, I'm asking you to share a lot, but a few more. Just a, a little story or two about Jerry from your perspective. Well, he was very kind to me. Uh, you know, there are people who have <laughs> horror stories yeah. or who experience disillusionment in one form or another. But when I was a kid, I thought the sun rose and set on Jerry Lewis. Right, me too. Uh, and... Uh, he he did not let me down. Uh, he still had it in him to his very last days on Earth to be that Jerry. That wasn't what he always was. It isn't what he was in real life off stage. But he could summon that, and that's what I found so fascinating. Yeah, and uh, he came through town in in Boston here with that show, and I just flew out of my mind the baseball yeah, show. Yeah. Damn Yankees, in the, in the 90s. And when he came out, uh, it was applause. Everybody loved it. But then, uh, I'm sure you may be familiar with this, He in the middle of the show, Jerry did 20 minutes, and he just That's did right. shtick for 20 minutes. It's like being at the Vatican, you know, and I'm not even a Catholic. Yeah. It was that exciting just to see him. And that's the thing that is really cool about a lot of these classic performers. Even at old age and whatever, and time has passed them by, they still have it. They still have it. You, Sammy Davis Jr., another great example. I love your story about Sammy. In his last days, still could hoof and, and do what he did. Just love that. And it was it was bred into them, you know? They were they were performing. Uh, I, I introduced Jerry at a video dealer's convention, uh, gosh, uh, in the 90s, I guess, and uh, where he was getting an award, you know, some made-up award. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, uh, he wouldn't join us for dinner because 
uh, once you put on your tuxedo, you did not sit down. In it. <laughs> I love that. And I believe in the dressing room, he was wearing a smoking jacket. Which, That's right. Which is, which is so Hollywood from the old days. I just, I just oh, love yes. that. Yeah. There's one other story. Uh, well, there are tons of stories uh, that I did want to get to because it's a different kind of story interaction with a star. And we just lost him, and he was bigger than life in the '70s. Burt Reynolds, and uh, you were a little taken aback that he was offended by something you wrote, a, a criticism of a film, which was not hard to do, by the way, because he made a, some stinkers, but. Talk, talk, talk. Well, I never, but I never attacked him. Right, that's that's my point. You know, I gave bad reviews to films like uh, Cannibal Run Three, yeah, and Stroker Ace, and you know, just utter junk that he was making. You know, to coasting on his uh, earlier successes, and when I finally met him at uh, uh, an event celebrating Western. Uh, uh, TV and movie Western stars and filmmakers, he said, I'd love to slug you, but there's ladies present. <laughs> and, and I'm no good at confrontation, but I looked him in the eye and I said, I have never said an unkind word about you. Maybe about some of your movies, but never about you. And he looked at me and he said, so it's not personal then. <laughs> I said, no, <laughs> yeah. it's not. <laughs> That was funny. That was... But he kept a grudge for a long, long time and uh, and said really uh, uh, you know, terrible things about me uh, in a couple of major TV interviews. And uh, my dad saw one of them and wanted to kick in the TV set. He was so upset. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah. it, it, it was our, our relationship became somewhat like the uh, the drunk that Charlie Chaplin encounters in his great movie City Lights. Oh, yeah, yeah. When, when, when it's nighttime, the guy is soused. He treats uh, Chaplin like his old pal, his old buddy. Mm. And when he sobers up in the morning, he doesn't recognize him. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was a... Which bird I was going to see. <laughs> very, was, telling, yeah. very telling story. Finally, uh, because I have you here, and you're such um, uh, an empresario and all this stuff... Just your thoughts on what's happening in terms of the big screen, uh, people going to the movies with the pandemic, with everything else. Home video, you can see a film breaking on your TV set as it enters a film house. It, we're definitely in a different era. Where do you see this all going, Leonard? Well, it all depends how long this, uh, this uh, uh, the virus and its variants continue to, you know, oppress us as a society and prevent us from uh, feeling confident about going out and about or, or being in, a, in, a, in an auditorium or an arena uh, or theater with other strangers. And uh, as long as that's, you know, happening, it's going to discourage us from going out and right. doing those things. And uh, th that may be part of the reason that West Side Story didn't, uh, get the uh, audience turnout that uh, they were hoping for this past weekend. Right. But uh, I, I think if we're ab ever able to conquer that, people do want to go out. No one wants to stay home 24-7, you know? Yeah, uh, and movie yeah. Going, and movie going has always been a social activity. It's not just seeing the movie. It's the, it's the act of going out with your spouse, with your date, with your friends, 
you know, however you, mm. you do it. Uh, it's an activity, and it's a social activity. Are you encouraged, as I am, by the, 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 the amount of content streaming and the amount of decent content and, and good productions? In, in fact, I've got to tell you, some of the uh, special effects, and I'm not a CGI fan all along, but of recent vintage on some of the local TV streams that I'm seeing are just breathtaking. Are you impressed, or do you think we still have a ways to go with writing and content? Well, writing and content will always trump anything, you know, that uh, you can do with CGI. I mean, you don't need CGI to make it, to put a great story on, on, on the screen, big screen or small screen. Uh, if it's part, look, I, I, I thought Dune was a great movie this year. Mm. I, I'm not a big science fiction uh, uh, aficionado, but uh, I thought the storytelling was, was very compelling. Yeah, me and, too. Uh, me too. Uh, you know, so uh, that, that won me over. Now, of course, it wouldn't be the same if it didn't have those great effects. So they go hand in hand in this case. Right, right. Um, let's plug your podcast. You're on mine. I appreciate it. Let's talk about yours, the one you do with your daughter. My daughter, Jessie, and I do a, a weekly hour-long interview show called Malton on Movies, and you can find it uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And we have posted our entire five-and-a-half-year backlog. And so you can listen to us with Mel Brooks, with Angela Lansbury, with uh, Jordan Peele, with Amy Adams, with all sorts of good people. And well, uh, we have a great, great time doing that every week. It, it is fun, isn't it, uh, to be able to generate it from your home studio? Isn't that great? Uh, well, it is great. I mean, it's been a lifesaver during the pandemic, during lockdown. Uh, but we really, really missed the opportunity of meeting and being in the same room with some yeah. of those folks. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're going to be in the same room with a tiny folk soon. Uh, you just became a grandfather. Muzzle tough. Congratulations. Our only daughter just presented <laughs> us with our first grandchild, an adorable daughter named Daisy. Yeah. And uh, uh, she's six weeks old tomorrow. She's one of those lucky kids who's going to have a very cool grandfather. Um, he's, he's, for Disney alone, I mean, you know, the, all the, stuff, well, the I story. Can't wait, I can't wait to introduce her to all that wonderful stuff. That's awesome. That's great. Well, the book is called, Leonard Malton is the author, the book is called Starstruck, My Unlikely Road to Hollywood. But I, I loved it. If If anyone out there is of a younger vintage and you really want to know what show business is like and from the old to the new. What a great primer and so much fun to read. And I am just tickled that we finally got a chance to have you on. Thank you so, so much. Good luck and keep on keeping on. Well, thank you. Uh, with, with encouragement like that, I will. Leonard Malton, the new book, Starstruck, My Unlikely Road to Hollywood from Good Night Books, available wherever fine books are sold. And if you're like me and love the movies, you'll love this book. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Switch Media for his publishing help, to Chart Productions in Boston, where we produce the program, and, of course, to you, wherever you may be listening around the globe, for being part of a loyal and growing audience. Thank you, thank you, thank you. To find out more about this podcast, about Chart Productions, voiceover, and my book, On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, visit jordanrich.com. That's my name, jordanrich.com. Till next time, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.